The subject for the evening talk is Acts of Trust. Uh, earlier today in the uh, staff uh, uh, dining room, um, this is indirectly by way of advertisement I suppose, but I was reading the uh, current issue of the Spirit Rock uh, newsletter and with a mild degree of interest uh, in it because uh, a good friend of uh, ours and one of the Spirit Rock teachers had an uh, interview with this poor self in it and, and so Gaia Armstrong had asked, if I may say, uh, lots of questions and knowing me um, uh, all too well very kindly touched upon the kind of questions that I could answer. <laughs> and so I, so he asked me if I remembered being a monk and I said yes, I could remember that. <laughs> This is, this is to save you the time and trouble in getting hold of this newsletter to read it. <laughs> and, but what, what occur a couple of things which occurred to me in the uh, 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 re reading through is that uh, sometimes uh, in life we uh, uh, say things and then in the very course of uh, saying uh, things we don't quite know what the outflows and the consequences are for better or worse and we may try to recover our tracks to re-explain ourselves to make it sound better or easier than uh, what it did originally or whatever it whatever it might be and sometimes in life it's one of those small but important acts and demonstrations of uh, trust that whatever the outcome that will be whatever the outcome and in this this wasn't any act of trust it was um, not having the time but Mary Ann and Guy Armstrong very kindly uh, emailed me the uh, typed up transcription from the interview uh, which was made in April and it was sitting at home and I finally read it after the newsletter came out. <laughs> and so I was mildly cautious or interested in the uh, re reading. And the, the only thing, as I said to Shard earlier today, uh, what I would have changed is that it says there, which I did say it was yeah, and this is um, rather American, and um, yes would have been better. <laughs> No offence. <laughs> so sometimes in life there are acts of uh, uh, trust and outflow uh, of things and I think one of the very important ones uh, and, and major ones in life and that is we are in the flow and rhythm of things. There's a certain continuity we heard today, continuity of mind flow or whatever and, and, and an awareness, so to speak, steps into that flow, whatever it might be, I'm not speaking anything painful, but just into a flow of our life, an awareness steps in 
and in that awareness stepping right into that flow it genuinely does disturb it and sometimes even alongside the pleasant and the comfortable and the useful there is something within oneself which does say some change, some shift is needed and with uh, that shift it's a, rem a moving uh, consciously and purposefully and deliberately away from the old into something new and in that kind of sh shift which is the uh, act of trust there that the actual new itself may be very much an unknown and it is a typical tendency and a very understandable one with us that in moving away from the known and the familiar, beneficial, useful, valid as it might be, we may not know what the new is. And for some, there is a very strong uh, factor of caution within the flow. And in the factor of caution within the flow of one's life, it can be that we are unwilling and uh, feel ill-prepared to start something new until we know what it is. The mind wants to know and it can therefore be difficult for some and we have to look at ourselves with regard to this. That if we sense we're in the process of some change in our life and we regard it as significant then it might be that we have to learn to adjust and to live with the letting go and the moving on from the old, being in a state of the unknown until the new and therefore the known actually sets in. And sometimes from ourselves and from others, we're in fact looking for a consistent reassurance that if I change from the old, the new will come in in a subsequent moment so that in some way or other I can have the persistence of the mind flow with new names, new forms, new ideas or whatever and it would be a pity if not tragedy but it would be a pity if we didn't so to speak seize the moment of the unknown in which the old and the known is not present <coughs> the new hasn't come in and there could possibly be something more significant in the unknown then in the old and then in the new or the next thing. But it can be, as we were hearing today in the inquiry uh, and other things, it can be that in the interruption, in the mind flow, it generates fear and insecurity. What am I going to do now? What am I going to do next with my life? What direction can it go in? And the mind can generate and create a whole uh, successive waves of uncertainties about what comes next. We see that in terms of future and uh, later uh, aging in life or retirement or uh, finances, all those th many, many facets of all of this. But from Dharma's standpoint, the period of leaving the known and entering into a phase of the unknown before the next comes uh, in tends to be a significance deeper, more profound, in fact, than what comes next. 
but it's hard, understandably and humanly enough. It's hard to be able to recognize and sense the immediacy of what's actually revealed to us. I remember Chadra and I were talking uh, uh, a little while ago on the uh, uh, way to here, and uh, Chadra having uh, lived here uh, for quite a few years, and then uh, a point in uh, her life, others of you know the same, point of wishing to um, make a change and going from home to uh, homelessness and living in such a way for the past uh, decade or more and others as others have done. So sometimes there's a shift, there's a change in that kind of form, only just one of many expressions of it and it's not always easy to temper and stay steady with the processes of change in that way. So they're the waves, as I said, which can, and some of you know and experiencing here, can arise and one thinks, this is the important thing here, one thinks the solution to the arising of the wave of uncertainty, uncertainty or insecurity is by bringing in the known. If I bring in the known, if I, if I know what I'm going to do next in my life, whatever, that will dissipate and dissolve the uncertainty, the insecurity, or whatever's arising. You'd be lucky. No guarantee that the known is the answer to the unknown. So, in, in, in the movement of unknown to, to uh, known, factor of trust is somehow important. It's a, it's a trust in, in staying steady with the moment, the unfolding moments of life. It's learning to be with the unknown. Sometimes that shows itself in, uh, in health issues. And one is faced with uh, the possible consequences you know, in the near or distant future with regard to one's health. One has been provided with information. The whole world is, of one's own world is generating or producing, naturally enough, uncertainty. It's a state of uh, un being in the unknown. Can we, with the waves of whatever it might be that is arising for us, can we, in the state of the unknown, learn to be with the unknown as a movement of the mind. Not of self, not of I, not of me, just a movement of the mind that's going on. Sometimes in that movement it naturally comes to quietitude. Naturally comes to quietitude. One still doesn't know what next comes in. One knows just enough that one has moved away from something of the old and there's a state of quietitude in which Past as a stream, as cut. Future as what flows on uh, next is clearly not apparent. And in that respect, in the moment, maybe there's some things that we can discover which is not of, as it were, past stream, not of what arises in relationship to the future. Something we could discover in all of that.
Sometimes trust, of course, extends itself from uh, 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 inner to uh, outer circumstances there. And in the relationship to trust, and in the looking at the extension of it, one vital area of all of this is what is our relationship to results? We're going to speak about trust, we've got to speak about movement as well, as well as the unknown, and speak about relationship to results. So often, feeling life, you, you put your energy out for something or for someone, you, you extend yourself, you, you express uh, all that one can do with heart and head and life and dedication and commitment or whatever it might be. And there's that inner and outer pouring as a manifestation of trust. And the natural wish in any extension of ourselves should be and would be for the welfare of the situation, the welfare of the other person. If it's a commitment, like in a retreat, for the welfare of oneself. So there's a movement of intention, movement of action, there is an interest in the result, and if one is a healthy attitude, caring attitude, with all of that, then there's the wish for the result to be beneficial, obviously, obviously. But again, simply the wish, simply the intention, and simply the action cannot provide nor ensure nor guarantee in this world. Therefore, the result should be precisely in accordance with intention and action. <coughs> so you and I might have some anticipation, might have some assurance in ourselves, some hope, some expectation or whatever. But the result, it's so important here, the results depend on multiple factors. We, heart, mind, body, choice, I, whatever we want, wisdom or clarity, whatever we wish to call, is only one factor in the arising of a result. It is only one factor, all that flows from out of ours, is only one factor in the arising of a result. To inflate the importance of that flat factor can bring its own heavy, difficult repercussions on oneself. One factor. And if in our life we say sometimes, or we overuse the language of choice, we can be nailing ourselves on the cross as much as that man was nailed 2,000 years ago. If we over-exaggerate the importance of choice, never forgetting how much activity of human existence comes from a tendency, a movement, an impulse, a sudden idea, a quick decision, a lot of thinking, or whatever. And if we say, well, I chose to do that, 
as though I had a tremendous amount of free will or whatever, etc., and think exclusively as though one had great, great choices in life. And then something doesn't work out, doesn't go as I, whoever the I is, would like. We can then, with a vengeance, turn on ourselves and heap huge blame on ourselves. Huge feelings of bad and guilt or whatever as some kind of outcome of not realizing, not appreciating we are a factor in the circumstances. One of your uh, great women rock singers has a great one-liner in one of her songs. She sings, I've got enough guilt inside of me to start a religion. <laughs> so in the looking there, seeing yes, we make a contribution. Yes, we need to trust our attitude, to trust the intention, to trust the movement of speech and body, heart and mind in all that flow of all of that. Yet in all of that movement that takes place, with us. Be watchful of attachment to results. Be very, very watchful. Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita speaks of this frequently. Watchful of attachment to results. The Buddha speaks of this. Watch the attachment to results. We overemphasize, exaggerate our place, our responsibility. Uh, we overinflate our sense of self-importance as though we are the cause and therefore the effect is entirely due to oneself. And we either inflate our ego on the one side or we undermine and attack and hammer ourselves on the other because we haven't understood the nature that the results come through what forms together. Once a year, I go, great uh, delight and uh, uh, privilege, once a year I go to uh, Israel and have been going there for the past uh, three or four uh, years and some of the uh, other teachers uh, have been as well. I know James Barras was uh, there last, last year and when I went the first time we started uh, a group which we call Face to Face and this, organi this uh, organization is one which wishing to make a contribution to dialogue between Israelis and the Palestinians. So the first time that we went, uh, myself in my uh, uh, facilitator role, went from uh, uh, Israel through uh, East Jerusalem and uh, to the uh, Palestinian uh, territories with about 17 uh, other uh, Israelis. And to the credit of all Palestinians and Israelis, this is uh, two or three years ago, the extension of trust from both communities. Trust of the Israelis to go to the Palestinians, trust in the Palestinians of having Israelis and, and, and myself staying in Palestinian homes in Nablus, where uh, 
major centres of uh, conflict for the Intifada over that six-year period. All expressions of trust, but then there's a climate of change, and that climate of change has deteriorated dramatically, dramatically in the past uh, three or four years. And as an example of what I mean is the Israeli government uh, this year, um, and for substantial parts of it, forbade Israelis to go to, into the Palestinian uh, areas, Palestinian uh, uh, territories. And even when the doors were open, with uh, young groups of uh, friends organizing for young Palestinians and young Israelis to be together and meet together, when, the, when there could be some freedom of movement between the two communities, the Palestinians, to their great credit, said, yes, we can let our, te we'll let our teenagers come. We'll let them come into uh, Israel, despite the fears, the tensions, and uh, the hostility which is generated to um, too many Palestinians. And even among friends, with teenage children, Israelis, politically active for constructive engagement, pacifists on the left, etc., who had teenagers, not one, not one parent could allow their son or daughter to go to a West Bank town from two till five in the afternoon because of fear, because of the worry and concern that something could happen to their child. And one I'm a parent, I have a 16-year-old daughter, I uh, uh, sympathize and empathize. Sometimes, somewhere, risks have to be taken. And for some, the risks, I'm not trying to make a comment on this, but sometimes the risks which are taken may, may involve those who are very close to us. May. And even though the parents could go with the teenage children, could cross over through the control, could go to a nearby Palestinian place, that one parent said, I just, I'm sorry, I'd love to, I just can't do it. I just can't let the child go. And I use it as an example of how, com how common these situations uh, are, and yet some of the teenagers were willing to go, but without parents' permission. I cannot, cannot go. And when, if I may say, I was there, my Israeli uh, uh, friends uh, dropped me off at the control point at Tul Karim. The Israeli uh, military uh, were there. I walked, uh, I walked, I looked at my passport, British passport. I walked across, I said bye to Israeli friends. I walked across and there was the Palestinian car with my Palestinian friends there waiting uh, for me. And then from there went to Nablus and Rakhmala and Betzahur and Tul Karim and uh, uh, other place for the meetings, but having to go alone. No Israeli allow, allow, allowed in. What chance is there for, and I didn't see one Westerner, three towns the whole day, people, Palestinians, trapped, locked in, third world situation there, hardly any freedom of movement for them. What hope? Who's going to take the risks? Who's going to be expressing trust to bring communities together. And they just use it, not only because of the dramatic tension 
that exists, that part of the world. But that kind of story, in fact, and the tragedy of it all, does keep replaying itself in other circumstances in our life. And sometimes we're constantly in a state of mistrust in which we're waiting for the other to take the first step. We say, when, when she speaks to me, when he speaks to me, when they show kindness to me, all of this is a filtering or a watering down of an inner trust and an inner confidence within oneself to take a step to open negotiation, to stay, take a step for constructive engagement. Dharma people have got the job. Never forget that if one is exposed to these kind of teachings and practices, it means, not easy, it means the degree of responsibility gets heightened. Because here, in these environments, we get the teachings that remind us. We get the methods, we get the techniques, we get the structures, we get the practices, we get the resources. One cannot expect other people who believe that every mind state is their ultimate reality, who have never had any exposure to awareness, to depth of meditation, to uh, wise and skillful action. You can't expect that those people to come out with great wisdom and great uh, clarity when everything is uh, real and not being able to see any of the way through that. So once one embarks on teachings and practices and trust uh, with it and the resources which are available, I say everybody gets more responsibility. And that's what the Sangha has, has great responsibility. And not in that heavy pressurized way, but in the ability to respond. And sometimes one hears teachings of this, and one has been listening, and in the very action of listening, and there will be certainly some people in this hall who will know immediately, from small groups and one-to-ones, who will know that in the very moment I'm talking, somebody in one's life, more than one sometimes, whom one is waiting to start the contact, who is one is waiting for the constructive engagement, who is waiting to be one to, so that one gets treated better before one will answer the phone to that person, as in one case, or whatever it might be. You'll wait till death and then it'll be too late. Not easy to say, hey, these teachings and practices, talking about trust, talking about wisdom, talking about compassion, means a statement of some ways in our life, with clear attitude, as I mentioned, as clear an action as we can, no investment in the results, actually responding from within to without. Don't wait for others who haven't had exposure to the Dharma of awareness and insight. It's a forlorn expectation. It's avoidance of responsibility. It shows a lack of trust. It shows that one is still holding on to memory. 
shows is still clinging to pictures and images and stories. It shows everything that we protest about and we look and investigate and try to dissolve. And I was talking with my, uh, the Palestinian friends in the, uh, the room. They've all done prison sentences, everyone in the room. Two to sixteen years for their political activities. Then realizing <laughs> things are not going to change through bullets. They're going to change, change through the exchange of words, exchange of contact, exchange of mutual understanding. Things are going to change through the lightening of their labels. Palestinian, Israeli, Muslim, Jew or whatever the labels which uh, haunt, haunt them. And one of the Palestinians said to me, which they wouldn't say in the, when the Israelis were there, but they tend, as usual, they, like most people, tend to be more polite. And, uh, but with myself, uh, if I may say, being, being there, they, <laughs> they can be less polite and uh, so can I. And uh, <laughs> so their less politeness, one of the uh, Palestinians uh, said to me, you know, these Israelis, they come and see us. But he said, what's it for them? It's just a, it's a day out. Come to the West Bank, see the poor Palestinians. Oh, they feel they've done something. They feel good. Then they go back home to their nice, comfortable jobs. Their nice running tap water, their electricity, their good salaries and their privileged life, etc. And leave us poor Palestinians they feel they've done something good. It's a cynical view. It's also not true. So I said, it's not the fact. The Israelis who are going to uh, the West Bank and spending time with Palestinians are often put down, dismissed. Parents are protesting, children are protesting if their parents are doing, telling them they're irresponsible, they're naive, they're, fo they're foolish, they're going to get themselves arrested, bombed, etc. I said to the Palestinians there, I said, you know, the, the Tibetans, they get more, far more international attention than you do, much more. And they said, yeah, we know. I said, you know why? I said, well, the reason is they've got the Dalai Lama and you've got Arafat. <laughs> there was a little deep breath in the room, but they laughed. They said, we know, we know who we've got. So sometimes when trust is there, Confidence is there, mutual respect is there, affection is there, when they know my uh, heart is uh, with them and my heart is my, with my uh, Israeli friends uh, equally out of respect for both communities, that one can say what one wishes to say. One can communicate that and it's taking in good spirit and in good stead and in that there's trust, trust which can take risks with each other. And as I said to them, I've read enough history books over the past uh, few years to know that the English dirty fingerprints 
uh, all over that region, as many of you will know. So as I say, just using it as a fact and slightly metaphorical, in so insofar as trust, past to present, present to the unknown to future. Trust, attitude, action, no dependency on results. Trust, initiating, not waiting for. All specific, concrete examples of trust. In giving specific and concrete examples of trust, it also means us to say, where am I short in the trust? What would show and de demonstrate uh, that kind of shortage? What am I prepared to do? What am I prepared to risk? What steps am I prepared to make knowing that I can't guarantee the outcome, no matter how pure, clear my intention is? And that shows itself here many times. A person comes to a small group with uh, one of us and is anxious and fearful about speaking up, one-to-one, -one, inquiry, or, or whatever. And one does, as one's right and fundamental right uh, is. It's an action of trust. Trusting oneself, trust in the others, trust in the circumstance, or whatever. And sometimes people come on retreats, never ever in their whole life ever spoken in any kind of public arena. And some people have said, you know, Christopher, I can handle two. I can handle three, or I can handle four, I can handle five, I can handle eight. Ten? Just twelve people sitting together, I start to freeze. Fifteen? Ninety? Never. Never, never. Can't handle it. I couldn't speak up with a whole hall of people listening. And sometimes some people know that's what they have to do. They know at some point they've got to break through. As some as person said today, sometimes speaking publicly for some people is terrifying. Therefore, one speaks. Because it's terrifying. And finding ways just to run the edges of trust. And for others, speaking publicly has about as much significance as eating breakfast. I'm one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the inner to the outer and the exploration and the looking at our, ourselves in uh, uh, the flow of things. But there are kind of trusts of life and trusts that we can look at and explore uh, here in, in various ways. But, as was pointed out in one of the um, inquiries as well, you say, yeah, there's trust. And the, the ebb and the flow of life with uh, trust also meaning that if there's no guarantee of uh, results, no guarantee of things working out well, and therefore sometimes in the final view, we have to fall back on our heart was in the right place. Sometimes that's the bottom line, that one does fall back, that one's heart, or one's attitude, or one's compassion, or one's awareness, or one's concern, or whatever it, one's action, is in the right place. And no matter what's said, and no matter what flack might be thrown at us in life as, as it will and, and can be, that's what we have to trust in and as the bottom line. Heart's in the right place. In order 
for that to be in the right place, we have to know ourselves very, very well. Never to underestimate in life the capacity for huge levels of self-deception. One of the frequent and most painful ones which I hear with uh, regularity and seenness and uh, men, men who are uh, fathers, tears galore, when sometimes a relationship, a marriage with, with children or partners, it has ended and one partner, either way, in this case what I've got in mind, one partner, this is the mother of the children, kept the children, minimized the opportunity for the father to have contact with the children, and constantly saying, well, I'm the main supporter for the children. I don't trust my children with him. I I'm need my children with, with, with me. He was never there for them. He was always working, or whatever, whatever it might be. And the mind can create this interpretation. It could be revenge for the end of the marriage. And the tool is holding the children depriving access to the children, all in with some incredible rationalization, all with tremendous strong convictions of views, etc. And it might be a very genuinely loving parent, loving father in this case, and sometimes it's the other way round, of course. So the knowing of ourselves that the heart is in the right place is extraordinarily careful and vigilant in life about what the intention is what the real motivation is, and sometimes we're not sure. We're not sure what the intention is. And if we've got to stay, because there may be the mixture or confusion of intention. All part of the work of knowing ourselves, establishing trust, getting the heart in the right place, so that we respond to existence from it. That's our practice. That's our challenge in life. But we still say, finally, here's this trust of life and the, the uh, inner responses to trust in life. And the demonstration, the examples that I gave, as, as well as many others. But sometimes it's as though the whole world of trust, clarity, movement and results, all the manifestations of that and the great wisdom which goes with it, in a way belongs to human life, dealing as wisely as we can with the events of life. Trusting in our perceptions, where trust is wise and skillful, where it's wise not to trust. All of that expressions of all of that. But then we come down to a silence and a stillness. We come down to not concerned with results, not concerned with the attitude and the movement of life and all the importance of all of that. We just come down to a silence and a stillness and a sense in a way, as well as an experience of not knowing 
where to go, what to do, or what not to do. Not attending anywhere. Sometimes painful association rises in our silence, in our stillness, in our humility, in our not knowing who we are, not knowing what was, what will come, not knowing who I am or whatever it might be. There's just a silence and a stillness and nothing and nowhere inwardly nor outwardly to turn to. Humility of nowhere to turn. Nowhere to turn. Not to past, not to future, not to present, not to self, not to other. And it takes a certain, almost a different kind of trust. Of nowhere to turn. Nowhere to rely upon. Nowhere to depend upon. And it can provoke, naturally, with the structures of mind that we have and the structures of heart, can provoke that upsurge of anxiety. The, the fear, the uncertainty, the whatever it might be. And we say, let's not even turn to that. Let's not even make that wave of anxiety or uncertainty or insecurity a reference point. Therefore, nowhere to turn, including all of that. It's a different kind of trust. And that different kind of trust is so different insofar as it's got nothing to do with doing. Nothing to do with my life, past, present or future. Nothing to do with oneself, the deep of oneself going to other. And all the importance of all of that as I've referred to. It's something else. Silence and still witness and absolutely nowhere to turn. And maybe, maybe, it's as though it's all held in something remarkable and mysterious, and somehow that trust is the same, shares the same nature in its deepest level of things as leaves on trees, sky and earth. But somehow in the great web of things, it stays steady. Somehow in this vast web of things, it all stays steady. And we can trust its steadiness. And no flow of mind streams and we've talked about, no interruptions of events or whatever, actually has the power to disturb its steadiness. And that sometimes in our great steadiness that we have the potential for, the steadiness reveals that which is ever steady, which we call the truth. But in our steadiness, we sense the truth of things is steady as well. In our steadiness, we sense the reliability of that truth, of this steadiness. And so that when we are steady, we are extraordinarily close to the steadiness. And all the interactions and the comings and the goings and all of that doesn't make a scrap of difference. Doesn't affect 
the steadiness. There's not an event that can affect it. And that's an extraordinary and wonderful way, as I say, when we are steady, we're steady with it all. And there's no measure to any of that. And that trust thus dissolves into the truth. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with insight. May all beings be forever steady with the truth of things. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.